Tenakoto, 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 Katoa. Welcome everybody to the Word Crush at Shifting Points of View season. Uh, and I'm, we're very honoured to be presenting the session, Marilyn Wearing the Political Years. Um, Christchurch has been a bit spoiled uh, in the last week or so because Marilyn also appeared at TEDx last weekend. Did anybody go to that talk? Yeah, quite a few of you, and I'm sure that there are um, lots of people who wanted to come back for a more in-depth um, discussion um, about Marilyn's book and her life and career. Um, so in a moment, I will hand you over to Bronwyn Hayward to introduce Marilyn, um, but first I just want to thank our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Christchurch City Council, the Rata Foundation, uh, as well as our partners, Te Runanga o Naitahu, Heartland Bank, and the New Zealand Listener. Um, could you please turn your phones to silent? Uh, and in the event of an emergency, um, remain calm and follow the instructions of the venue staff. Um, now, Marilyn's books are for sale out in the foyer at the UBS stand, and she will be happy to sign them for you after the session as well. Um, at the end of the session, there will be time for audience questions as well. Uh, so, nothing more from me. Could you please welcome your host, Bronwyn Hayward, and the wonderful Marilyn Waring. Tēnā koutou katoa, ka mahimahana, kia koutou, a very warm welcome in Tēnākoe. Marilyn, it's fantastic to have you here. To say that somebody's legendary and well-known and needs no introduction is a cliché, but it's true. But I am going to do the classic of saying some things about this formidable, fabulous mind and inspiration. Former politician, the youngest to ever enter Parliament at 23, Feminist, daughter, sister, professor of public policy, which is legendary in itself at AUT here in where I work at uh, Canterbury University, because at the moment I think she has 17 PhDs, just down from 21 that she's supervising. When she's not giving development and uh, human rights um, advice and work for governments, including the Canadian government, well, many actually. Uh, she's been the subject of documentary films. She's been the pioneer of economic accounting. She famously crossed the floor to bring down a government. Uh, and in the process of being fiercely independent, forged a career that has really shifted and made me proud about what New Zealand politics can do across our boundaries. And I have to say in introducing Marilyn, if you haven't got this book, get it. It isn't at all what I expected. It's made me laugh and it made me cry. I nerdily was reading it with the computer on the side, looking up stuff and folding things. It's like a time capsule of unexploded landmines as well for, for the future. There are so many nuggets in this, but it's told in a pithy, funny, beautiful way. So Marilyn, with that long introduction, I was actually going to ask if you wouldn't mind just starting from the description of your very first meeting at Raglan when you were elected uh, to represent Raglan at the grand age of just 23, which is the same age as my daughter. <laughs> uh, thank you, Bronwyn. Okay, so I'll pick it up um, after... I've got to the final five down from 
11 um, for the National Party selection for Raglan in 1975. Um, I've let you know that I belong to the Women's Electoral Lobby in Wellington, that I was a part-time researcher in Parliament buildings, uh, and that Raglan was the last safe seat where National might uh, select a woman candidate, and they'd been without a woman uh, in their caucus from 1972 to 75. Um, and I have to say that while I was diligent, um, I spent um, quite a few weeks in the parliamentary library reading the three-month backlist of the Waikato Times, the Te Aumutu Courier, the Cambridge Independent and the Huntley Press. It was so I didn't make a fool of myself, not because I had um, any desire to win or any idea that that was even remotely possible. So George Gere advised me, and then others in Raglan did too, it dawned on me that some were actually backing me, to make house calls on delegates. I went back north. I borrowed my mother's car and some of her clothes. I began in my hometown of Huntley, where three members of one household were delegates. The tea and conversation were going very well until they asked about New Zealand's sporting links with South Africa under the apartheid regime. Uh, I had demonstrated against these as a student. I joined the silent marches in Wellington to remember the Sharpsville massacre. I was completely opposed to sporting and other contacts with South Africa. The National Party was to allow these links and not to interfere. I disagreed with this and said so. We were polite to each other, but I drove away laughing at how hopeless I would be if this was ever real. The next visit was to an older local who thought I was too young, and we had a very energetic conversation about what a House of Representatives might mean if there were no women and no young people included. Um, so then selection night arrives, Monday the 24th of March 1975. Presentation and wardrobe were a challenge. I had my hair done. I certainly couldn't afford an outfit. In the absence of any recent women candidates, there was no established dress code. My mother convinced me that I could wear a long, teal, smocked satin frock that I had worn as a bridesmaid a year <laughs> earlier. I just love that. And I particularly love that later on, when the voting becomes block voting, the family that you were frank with voted for you. Because they said if you were going to be frank and honest in their living room, they'd trust you in Parliament. That's right. So, there's so much in this, but you would be proud of that 23-year-old now. But what would you say? I mean, she had a staggering commitment to work that is just overwhelming. But what would you say to her now? Would you advise her to go into Parliament? Don't do it. <laughs> Seriously? Well, you can't, I, you know, you can't yep. actually go to that place. Um, I really wanted to be a classical musician, uh, and for many years, 
Um, I, I had trained um, for six months in London and a number of years in New Zealand. Um, it took me a long time to ever be able to go to a concert again where there was a woman vocal soloist, something like 10 years, because I, it, it just broke me inside. Um, but then I used to say to myself, look, I'm not sure I would have been a great dying Desdemona anyway. So, um, uh, but it was, I had never grown up thinking I would be a politician. I studied political science and international politics, but because it was interesting, yeah. you know, and because it wasn't French and German and English and history and, you know, the things that I'd done for so long. So, um, I, I think I say in the introduction to the book that I exercised a great deal of forgiveness um, in the years of writing this and in opening all those hundreds of um, cartons and boxes. And I just think I came from um, a family that genetically worked hard, really. I mean, you just got up and worked, and, and it was too bad. You, if the work was still there, you still worked. I think one of the things that really surprised me about the book and why I would urge people who are thinking about politics which we still hope that we get some good ones going into politics, to read, is the way you prepared, the huge amount of work you did in constituency, responses, research, connections, but also the strategy. Uh, not just the sheer amount of time you had to travel to get round electorates, but I think in our modern ways, modern, of reporting and commenting and the punditry, we forget the strategy, the thinking, the networks, the face-to-face -face connections. How did you learn that? Because some of those connections and strategy became hugely important through this very tumultuous period of politics you were in. How did you learn to do that? Was it instinctive? Or? No, well, mostly people taught me. So I learned really quickly from the way in which George Gere used questions in the House when he was in opposition, how effective questions to ministers could be. Uh, and I was assigned to George when I was, um, I was so lucky of all the people to learn from. Um, he worked so hard. Uh, and of course, then once you're in government, there is supposed to be a practice where if you want to submit questions in the House to a minister, you clear it through the whip's office and they clear it with the minister and then finally they submit it to the clerk's office. But standing orders said any member can submit a question to the clerk's office. So I just decided I would obey standing orders and I didn't bother about the other rigmarole. Um, <laughs> Um, that was important. I learned um, from a woman called Valerie Forbes mm -hmm. that the National Party at that time uh, had an option for six people to be co-opted to an electorate executive and that they would automatically have their own individual voting right in a, a selection process. So when I was challenged for WIPA 
and Valerie was in the body of that meeting, I very quickly caught her eye, nominated six people, she seconded it, and those six people got me home in the first ballot. Um, other completely fortuitous, amazing pieces, like as we were on the Friday before the selection for Waipa in 1978, um, a woman called Michelle Bogue, who I only knew as a oh, member yes. of, oh, do you yeah, want that? I want to read that wee bit. Okay. It's <laughs> a great bit. I was working in my office in Parliament on the 3rd of March when Michelle Bogue, who worked in National Party headquarters in Wellington and was prominent in the Young Nationals, knocked on my door. She didn't say much, she wished me the best for Monday evening and handed me an envelope and left. Inside the envelope were the two questions that would be handed to candidates at the selection meeting, one from the party president and one from the prime minister. Neither was difficult or challenging, but it was useful to gather a few more briefing papers to swap for the answers. So I had, you know, there weren't that many women in many places, but the ones who were there were really hanging out for me as well. Well, that's, there's lots of things I want to ask, and conscious that we're going to have time to ask some questions. Can I go straight to that? So you were the 14th woman ever to be in Parliament? Oh, Colleen Dew was the and I were the 14th and 15th yeah. in 75, right. yeah. It is quite something. So We're up to 150 at the moment. Yes. <laughs> um, it was Precisely. very difficult, isn't it? <laughs> the... The loneliness must have been very hard. I remember as a student, I was a, just as a university student when you were there, I was aware of the hostility that you had no friends. And I often have thought about what that must feel like for people in parties. I mean, did it feel like that to you? That's what it looked like a bit, that you were kind of attacked on all sides. A bit like Hannah Arendt in philosophy. <laughs> you don't fit neatly somewhere. Uh, it, it, well, because you are almost effectively imprisoned in the particular building, um, because you can't leave the building without leave from the whips, you see. So from Tuesday morning until, as it was then, Friday afternoon, you were trapped there. If you came from a safe seat, you were more trapped there because you didn't need to be out, you know, in your seat winning votes. Um, if you were a backbencher, you were more trapped because it had to be cabinet ministers that were going. The quorum in the House at any one time was for 20. So um, government backbenchers, um, we called ourselves cannon fodder because we just had to sit there. Though, of course, I was a very good woman, so I could sit there, listen to the debate, read my trade magazines, and do my knitting um, <laughs> at the same time and feel, you know, more creative than a lot of people just sitting there. Um, 22 garments in all <laughs> in, in that eight and a half years. 
Um, and I got better and better at it too, the longer I sat there. Um, yes, but really incredibly lonely, and incredibly lonely, uh, I, I think of a moment when I've been to, um, been visiting Weymouth Girls' Home and then Miramar Girls' Home, and these young women there aren't much older, sorry, aren't much younger than I am, and um, the staff seemed quite willing for me, both there and at Arahata, which I used to visit, um, to have time without guards and everything all around me. And one of the things that the staff had told me was that they were very worried that girls would be there uh, up until almost just the, a week or two before they were due to go home, and then they would run away, so they had to be sent back. And we had a, a select committee on violence at the time. Um, we still had not, it was, getting the select committee on violence was the first time that the women members of parliament had actually been able to get domestic violence in front of a select committee. Because it was ruled out of the terms of reference of the select committee on women's rights uh, in 74, 75. And so I can remember being in caucus and saying, you've got no idea about the subtleties of some of this and what's going on, and your cliched rhetoric. These kids can't go home. If they go home, it'll be incestuous uh, assault, they'll be raped, they'll be further assaulted, that's why they run away, you know, before... Um, it's time for their release. And this is in the 78-81 period, and I'm the only woman in the caucus. And he's very lucky, because he's still alive, and I didn't name him. Um, but one of my um, caucus colleagues says, oh, normal women don't think like that. Yeah. And you know, moments like that are, they're just, the whole place goes still, Nobody stands up for you, mm. and the Muldoon just moves to the next agenda item. So, you know, those ones were, that's the real tough stuff. That's, you can't get up and walk out of caucus because you're the only woman in caucus. You especially, on Thursday mornings, don't drink tea and don't drink coffee. Because um, you're there all the time. Because I have to be in the room the whole time. The only woman's bathroom, there's only one bathroom beside the caucus room, and it's a male bathroom. And the woman's bathroom is several hundred metres right around. Um, and so I cannot leave that room. So I, I, I cannot leave that room, and it doesn't matter what happens. I just have to swallow up and stay there. And I think that's something that's quite striking, that when you do leave the room, there's a lot that quickly happens when Marilyn's not here, let's pass this stuff through, you know. And do you think, strategy-wise, that's exhausting? You're still only 24 or 25, and these are 50, 60-year-old men. I think one of the things I was really struck about is I heard someone say, oh, Marilyn didn't stand a chance, it was a toxic environment, which I think takes away all the agency, because what's stunning about this is the way you fought and strategised, but the cost must have been huge. There's a description you have of, of running to Parliament. I mean, do you want to, is that bulimia or, yes? 
Yeah, I didn't even know Thinking there was a well, word for it. Yeah. Okay, I just knew that Wednesday to Friday morning, I used to run to work in Wellington, and I knew it like it didn't happen in the weekends when I was home, and a store would run in the morning, and I would run, and I would run through that bottom door and straight to the ladies' bathroom to vomit every day. And there was nothing I could do about it. Well, I mean, I think when I think about the position that we have put women leaders in in these kind of contexts, and I'm thinking now about the way in which Jacinda was built up into this, and now it's kind of like this pulling down. And we, we've done that again and again. I remember the attacks on Hekia Prata when she was minister, you know. And one of the things that I'm thinking about reading this book is that was quite striking is that we are in a very bullyish phase internationally of strong men in politics now, but this was a period like that. And you talk about the police having a go at you over the rape laws. So you had, yeah, do you want to say something about that? When the police really tried to bring you down? Um, yeah, well, because of the, the um, I had a relationship with the Araha Trust, and I had a relationship with Black Power. Um, and I knew that um, women were sexually violated, assaulted, manhandled um, when they were arrested, uh, and um, especially for searches. I'd been to a, a big meeting in Auckland. There were a handful of we women in the room um, there was an awful lot of police, there was a police surgeon who thought it was funny to tell all the boys there that um, he got to examine women who's, who was so flabby the speculum fell out and he was supposed to think they'd been raped. <laughs> you know, so that's the kind of atmosphere that, that we were working in. Though, though, you know, there really is one thing about strategy, and it definitely, it's what I pull in the last few pages, um, which is that all those old men actually are so predictable. So it's one thing to be trying to be bullied and intimidated by them, but it's another to see right through them and go on anyway. Um, and basically, it, for most days, I remember Mike Minogue of, um, would say that our job description was to spin 360 degrees 24 7 to stop even worse things from happening. Um, and I think that was very accurate about what we were doing. Uh, but the other thing was they really were predictable and they were so stupid. They would, you know, I, I think of a moment at the end of 1983 and from 81 onwards when there's just a majority of one and so first of all we get Bruce Beetham's Nuclear Free New Zealand bill into the house and I think to myself, that's okay, it's coming. I can see majority of one, I'm gonna cross the floor. I talk, it might be Derek, that I talk into being the advocate and caucus to stand up and say, look, I think we can help Marilyn. 
in this. You know, it's, it's not just, this is a very important issue, and Ozzy Malcolm saying, yes, it's an important issue in Eden, you know, and, and very important issue, and maybe we could have a select committee just to look at, you know, the UN Disarmament Conference. And I'm thinking, like, so I'm saying to Derek, you know, you could just say that, that would do. You know, and I'm thinking to myself all the time, if I've got a select committee, there's somewhere for the bill to go to, they won't be able to stop the bill going there, etc. like this. Now, once we've got the bill in front of the select committee, I have to keep that alive until 1984, right? So we're in 1982. So. <laughs> It's easy enough to get through the end of 82, and then we're getting right to the end of 83, and we've got a draft committee report, a draft report. We've, we've managed to keep it going. Helen Clark was on the same committee. We've managed to keep it going, keep it going. Um, I think Gary Knapp was on it too, and most of you could kick him under the table to, you know, just, come on, Gary. Um, and so we're always sitting there, and you know the, the rules for procedure of a select committee are in fact precisely the same as the rules of procedure in the House. So you cannot, as the chair of a committee, mislead members of the House. So I wait until really near the end of what I'm assuming will be our last meeting. And I say to Doug Kidd, who's sitting in the chair, Mr. Chairman, before we disperse, um, I would just like to have an indication from you uh, and an assurance that the government will keep this bill alive and it won't be part of the terminating notice of motion uh, on the last day of sitting. And so Doug says, yes, I'm very happy to assure the House of that. And I think, great. <coughs> because... Moments before that notice of motion comes, on the final day, in 1983, Don McKinnon bustles up to me and says, the boss says we're going to kill the Disarmament and Arms Control Select Committee. So I can say to him straight away, well, I'm sorry, Don, I'll have to have a point of order to the Speaker because Mr Kidd has obviously misled all the members of the committee. And that's all you have to say. And so then that's withdrawn from the notion. Now, you know, in loads and loads of these ways, when I say you can strategically, you can anticipate them, it doesn't actually make you feel great to have to behave like that, because you've got to descend to their level, and you can't just win on the argument. But if that's the only way to keep that bill alive, that's what I'll do. And so one of the hardest things to live with was that the further, the longer it went on, the more self-contempt I had for what I had to do to be there. And yet, you were also there as witness at the time of the Springbok tour in Hamilton. You were with the, you were on the bank uh, as the. Um, protests was surrounded, and then when, when Labour and National MPs were all told to stay away and be silent, not make a comment, you were pushed and then nearly strangled, and that made the front page of the paper by angry rugby people leaving. So that, I was trying to work out, so that was three years before you were doing this. So 81. It was, 
which kind of explains why, at the same time as you famously survived the meeting where you confronted Muldoon, and it isn't actually over the nuclear act, but what they were going to do next, it's that point of principle. You were doing that, if you could just explain that. But I just want to add, I sort of read that and was amazed, and then the next minute you're under the office desk with the door snibbed while Caucus is <laughs> having their meeting about the fact what you've just done. So could next you just... Door. Yes. Could you just backtrack on that whole... I sort of read that 24 hours and thought, bloody hell. <laughs> Um, yeah, it would be good if we came back to some of the tour bits. Yes. Um, so, this time, Richard Preble has decided he wants to introduce a bill, uh, a, a, a nuclear-free New Zealand bill. We still have Bruce's bill alive in front of the select committee. This is Richard playing games, but it's too bad. You know, like, you're sure it's a game, but I'm not going to game his game, right? Um, I, it, doesn't ma it doesn't matter who's introducing the bill, I believe in it, you know? So, um, it, I've made it really obvious that I will um, vote to have this one introduced as well. Um, and Michael has sort of indicated he possibly will, Others who were kind of supportive were arguing, we don't need this one, we've got one in front of the committee, but, you know, a matter of principle is a matter of principle. It's like, I'm not going to explain to people outside, oh, yeah, I voted for that one and not for that one. So, we, um, Richard has given notice of his intention to introduce this bill. It's going to come the following week on Private Members' Day. I think it must have been maybe the Thursday night and David Thompson comes to visit me in my office. Um, it's very unusual that members of Cabinet came to ever visit me in my office. Um, so he came in and first of all, he was extremely patronising and he told me that he believed in peace when he was young too. Oh, that's right. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and then he tries to tell me what ANZUS means, and though he's Minister of State and Minister for Defence, I know that of the two people sitting in the room, the only one who could just about recite the ANZUS Treaty, because it's not long, and who had read every single ANZUS communique since the treaty had been signed was me, not him. <laughs> And so I knew who the expert was in the room on what ANZUS did say and did not say. So we had an argument about that. Um, God, what, oh, oh, then there was, um, you know, I only had six months to run and I'd get my superannuation. Oh, yes. And he didn't get much traction on that. Uh, I, well, he didn't get any traction on that. <laughs> Uh, really? I've got my whole life to live with me? Do you know what that's going to be like? Um, and then he said, well, if I was that impossible, he had to tell me that even if the House introduced the law, introduced the bill, Cabinet and the Executive Council, and passed it, Cabinet and the Executive Council would refuse to send it to the Governor-General for assent. Mm. 
And I just said to him, I can't believe you've just said that, David. I think you'd better leave now before I really yell at you. Because that's appalling. That's outrageous. That's not what the National Party stands for. And it's not what democratic government stands for either. And I just think you'd better not say that aloud to anybody else, ever. Now, please leave. So that's what happened. So then we're, I'm sitting beside Mike in the house we're the, sort of, we're the remnants of 75 who have never got promoted to anything, you see. So by now, the M's and the W's are sitting beside each other. Um, and, and, um, the stir is in the back row. Um, and so Richard introduces the bill. And Thompson, oh, and it's not even Thompson. They've briefed the speaker. And before... Richard just gives notice that he's going to start his speech. And the speaker rises to tell the House that under this strange speaker's ruling in 1935 or 1936 that was about housing and mortgage payments, it's only been used once in the history of Parliament, that the speaker has to advise the House that this will not be sent to the Executive Council for consent. And Michael, as I said, this is the first time Michael's heard it, and he's shuffling, reaching the Speaker's rulings and standing orders already, and I'm saying to him, God, Thompson pulled that one on me last week. And Mike says, the lunatics have taken over the asylum. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great line, and I've never forgotten it. And. And that's what happens. And it's like, I, at that point, I just go, well, I don't care. I do care. I go, well, that's it. That's it. You've, you've put my back against the wall so many times over all these years. And I've crossed the floor, you know, 18 times one Yes, night. I saw that on the youth votes. Yes. Against youth rates. It was on the entire yes. industrial relations legislation. I crossed 18 times. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I'm just sitting there saying, well, whatever happens now, that's it. That's it. I'm not walking into that caucus again. I'm not going to be any part of this. This is absolutely the end of the road. How dare he say democracy doesn't work in my country? You know, whatever the result is. So um, I know I'm never going to get the call. So I go up and down, up and down, up and down. I think dear to Bill speak. Rowling yeah, trying to yeah. get the call to speak. And Labor had worked out, a, oh, on the Industrial Relations Act, Labor had, Jeff Palmer one night came scuttling over to me and pointed out a standing order to me and said, Fraser Coleman's going to take the call. You have to stand. Call, call, call to the speaker. You know it's not your turn, but it's Fraser's turn. And Fraser's then going to give you all, cede you all his time as long as you're still on your feet, you see. <laughs> so you do that. So I know Labor will try this again, so I'm up and down like a little... <laughs> but... National pulls up, puts up its whole front bench, puts up 
you know, Minister of State and the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister and the Minister of, you know, it's got this whole front row going, and you'd never do that on anybody's private member's bill, you know. So I never get to speak, and then we do um, finally vote on it, and we lose by one because the whips have Brian McDonnell and John Kirk virtually locked in the National Whip's office, plying them with liquor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious, it wasn't funny. Um, and so they grab those votes, so we actually lose by one. Lose, we actually lose the nuclear, the introduction of the bill by one. And I go home that night with some big pieces of A3, and I sit there most of the night mind mapping is it best to leave caucus? Is it best to leave the National Party? Is it best to leave Parliament? And what are the pros and cons of each of those? And what will do the least harm to Catherine O'Regan? And what will be really the least harmful to the people I love, the people who've supported me mm -hmm. back in Waipa? Um, and where I think I can give Muldoon enough rope to hang himself so it doesn't look like I caused anything. And, and that's what happens. It was spectacular. So you know, I, 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 write him, I write the whips a note saying I'm... And you see, there's a majority of one, and I also... Huh, it's... Oh God, see, early in 82, all of this was completely... Early in 1982, I make sure I'm on the Public Expenditure Committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee, and the Disarmament and Arms Control Committee, because they are the only committees of um, supply and confidence. And I put myself on a couple of other select committees as well. And so I withdraw from caucus and from all select committees. So the government immediately doesn't have a majority on the three core, the three most central committees. Mm. And that was enough rope, and he did hang himself. Not without a vicious and spectacular <laughs> night. So <clears throat> I was thinking about that because as I read it, I was thinking about Boris Johnson proroguing Parliament right now. I was thinking as I was reading about the land protests over Raglan and Bastion Point, which you were tensely involved with trying to negotiate and thinking about Ihimato now. If this really is, if our climate change and our politics now is again a nuclear-free moment, what would be your advice for this new generation of young people who are stepping up into politics publicly against what sometimes feels quite overwhelming odds? What would be your advice? Um, well, I tend not to give advice to young people because I was given an awful lot yeah. that I didn't welcome. <laughs> so, uh, um, however, um, I'll, I'll just, for Mr. Johnson, um, if, I was, if I was Europe, uh, then on the Irish border, I would simply have the I would have a frame that simply said, the Irish backstop is in place until um, we have uh, sufficiently good enough IT to be able to just each vehicle going through. I mean, uh, why is that so hard? 
Um, that, so I would do that. Um, if, because I, I play this game in my head, I can't imagine that I would still at this point have been a Conservative MP, but um, um, if I still was, he only has a majority of one, so you could do the whole world, you know, a good turn, couldn't you, there? Um, <laughs> um, um, well, some, like, when I'm thinking about declaring um, uh, climate crises, right, of local government, so, and I'm talking to the young people in Auckland, and they're getting that, oh, it doesn't make any difference. What do you think that's going to do? Well, <laughs> look, I could just about do that in Muldoon's voice. Yes. Because nuclear-free New Zealand was Wouldn't exactly like that. And it was, and he'd say, oh, it's not going to make any difference. You know, what but the <laughs> point is that when you get to a general election, and 66% of the people live in... Council areas that have declared a climate climate crisis. crisis, we might be able to fight for 2030 instead of 2050. Mm. So I just go to them, we've been here before, don't let anybody put you down like that. This is exactly how we rolled out Nuclear Free New Zealand, just keep going. Local by and, local. And the 27th, is it, of... September, yeah. September, strike. which is everybody strike. Okay, everybody my age group, absolutely. We screwed it up. I expect you to be out there with them. I'm really serious. So, um, oh, there's so many things, and I want to turn it over to questions. But can I just squeeze in one other book? Uh, we, and we haven't even done the Springbok tour, but I just want to talk, just maybe two quick questions about all your about all your work that happened after Parliament um, around rethinking our economics as if women, people, the environment and earth counted. Um, one question that I've often heard the criticism was made at the time that you were trying to put these ideas through, and I love the description of of actually getting something through into the UN while you were the UN representative and you rang New Zealand and a feminist bureaucrat said, oh, I can't get a minister's comment on that. I'm sure it will be fine. <laughs> so you, you got to put in some pretty radical language into the... And as you say, it's just setting, changing the tone of the language. But the criticism that was made from the left at the time was, well, isn't this just reducing all of our uh, things that we love to a numerical value if we start counting them, our unpaid work. So how do you respond to that criticism? And I suppose it comes up now with ecological services when we say, oh, well, we'll count and we'll start putting a value on environment. Um, yeah, well, when I first wrote the first draft of Counting for Nothing, um, I think I was still very influenced by the fact that it, in the parliamentary and government process, the way to um, create visibility was to have market estimates. And quickly, as I grew away from parliament, I realised that was deeply flawed. And by the time the second edition of Counting for Nothing was published, I completely rejected that point of view. 
Um, I do still want numbers, though, but they're different numbers. So I want time use studies for all work. Um, and I want um, authentic environmental indicators. So what that means is um, this is the nature of this forest ecosystem, not this is what these trees are worth if they're milled. Um, and I think one of the best ways to demonstrate um, what has ha happened uh, is like GDPs in the worst, it's, <laughs> it's really laughable now, it truly is really laughable that anybody can still believe in it. Um, so the OECD have gone off to try and construct well-being capitals and I was saying to Bronwyn, I really try to put a, a, quite an abyss between tr what Treasury and OECD are talking about and what I think the um, current government and particularly its coalition, uh, not partner, what do we call the Greens? The Greens. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Su but support party. Support party. Thank you. Support party understands. And so the OECD Treasury mob think of the environment as assets, resources, services, and capital. So here's just a little bit from in here. When it comes to natural capital, Treasury wants to know more about its quantity, state, and nature, so as to identify its financial value. But in this monocultural framework, what will be the treatment of te awa whanganui, te maonga taranaki, and te uruwera, all of which have been granted the status of a legal personality in recent years? If anyone harms or abuses these iconic features, it is the same as harming the tribe. Then there are our 13 national parks established to quote the relevant legislation for the purpose of preserving in perpetuity their intrinsic worth, containing scenery of such distinctive quality, ecological systems, or natural features so beautiful, unique, or scientifically important that their preservation is in the national interest. They comprise 30% of our land mass. An area equivalent to the further national park is contained in the more than 167,000 hectares in protected covenants under the Queen Elizabeth II National Trust. This is nobody's capital. So, on that note, I think we've got two people with microphones and we might uh, turn it over to questions. And because we haven't got much time, and it is inspiring, but could we just make them questions? <laughs> Not manifestos. <laughs> so, uh, we've got it. So, questions. Yes, one at the front. And just flap your arms like mad and I'll keep an eye on you. Um, you can say no if you, if you don't, if this is too time consuming. I wanted to hear more about hiding under the table with the door locked. Oh, sure. <laughs> and action to the, thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, so, um, so I sent the memo to the, the whip, you know, 
saying I wouldn't be at caucus this morning. So two memos. The first one was to say I wouldn't be at caucus because I'd just gone to think about my future. <laughs> you may be sometime. Um, and um, there was so... I had no idea, but there's so many people missing from caucus that morning, I wasn't missed, if you see what I mean. Um, and I went to a violin masterclass at Vic. Um, <laughs> as I knew was on, and a friend of mine was going, so off we went, it was quite a nice, you know, nobody can talk to you sitting there quietly. Um, and then I came back to Parliament, and then I wrote the memo that said I'm not coming to caucus anymore to any select committees, and then I sent that to the WIP. And then hours went past, and, you know, there was this microcosmic chance he might just play my bluff. I doubted it. I thought he was too out of control to be that smart anymore. But um, there was that possibility. And in the meantime, um, you've got a couple of Christchurch people here. So Dame Anna Bonish, Lady Beverly Scott, uh, Dame Barbara Goodman from Auckland, and... Uh, Brenda Cutrus from Wellington, we'd all agreed that we'd been on the back foot um, as far as the reproductive freedom was concerned in all the elections. And so several months beforehand, we'd decided on this date where we'd all get together and try to strategize so that we were anticipating anything that might come our way instead of just always... Uh, on the back. So they all arrived in town and we all met at a restaurant in Kelvin for dinner. And um, I remember somebody saying to me, Marilyn, you're fairly quiet this evening. Just left it. Anyway, came back to my office. And so that's 7.30. And now I know it's all right. Somebody's opened the memo because there are messages from whips and messengers and tele telephonists and things all over my desk saying, Barry Lay wants to hear from you, Sue Wood wants to hear from you, etc. But at that point, no summons, oh, I rang Bar Barry's home and Sue's home and both homes told me they were on their way to Wellington to see me. Um, this is nine o'clock so, at night or something. So, um, uh, so I changed into a tracksuit. <laughs> <laughs> and I picked up the pad to take the minutes of the meeting. And after a while, there was a phone call that asked me to go to the WIPS office. So I went to the WIPS office and the Prime Minister was there. So was Sue, so were Barry, um, McKinnon, from time to time, others coming in and out. Um, and um, it was pretty toxic and pretty vile. Uh, and the only people who ever asked me, why are you doing this in the entire, it w were Sue and Barry. And when I told them about the threat that, you know, legislation wouldn't be sent to the Executive Council. Um, for signatory, neither of them even bothered to try and argue, you know, because it's pretty hard to. Um, and uh, so then it became, uh, uh, you know, he kind of went off Muldoon, 
for a while, it went on and on, and then they had to plan an election so I could finally get out. And I walked, just walked back to my office and went in the door and picked up the pad and carried on <laughs> taking the minutes. And my office was right beside the government caucus room. And so at half past 10, there starts to be a hell of a lot of noise next door. And I just went over and snubbed both the locks on the two old, there's two old snibs on the old, heavy old parliamentary doors. And then I just sat back down again and they can't, you know, the women sitting there saying, what's all that noise? What's going on? And I said, oh, there's going to be a general election. Well, that was very funny because they all leapt up and went like this. And then they went, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of them even said, oh, my husband's a candidate for the National Party. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... Um, um, and I said, oh, I'll be blamed, you know, and we, can, we can't actually hear the words, but you can hear the you can, yeah, rising And volume. you can see from out of my window, you can see the television lights starting to arrive <laughs> in the corridor. Um, and then you hear this half-hearted clapping, and then they all troops out. And so then there's a big knock on my door. And by that point, I've hopped under my desk, which is one of those ones with a real great cover right down to the floor. And Brenda, I think it's Brenda and Barbara, go over to the door to try and unlock the door. Well, look, they just, they couldn't work the snibs, and they were, it was a nightmare. <laughs> and before I knew what was happening, They'd shunted a table over against the door. Then they'd got Brenda to climb onto the table. <laughs> and there's a push-out window <laughs> at the top like this. And Brenda comes from the UK. And she's, these, look, every one of these women is so polite. And, you know, and Brenda's up there and she's saying, oh, hello, what's going on? <laughs> And, and, and the journalists say, well, it's going to be a general election and, and Marilyn's being blamed. And so Brenda goes, oh, really? Is she all right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then, because they can't move. So by this time, I'm like beside myself with giggles. But I crawl out and I go over and I unsnip, you see, and then I run back and climb back underneath. And Brenda goes... Oh, just a minute. One of us seems to have undone the door. <laughs> pulls the table away, and then they all just sitting there like this. And then come the gallery, looking around. <laughs> and then they say, so what's the Prime Minister said? And they're fabulous, you see, because they get me completely up to date <laughs> while I'm under the desk. So, look, you know, it was real Keystone Cops there for a moment. And it was just wonderful. You could only do this with women, you know? <laughs> yeah. It'd be hard to top that question with another question. <laughs> oh, another one here at the front. Thanks, Marilyn. Um, 
What, what gives you hope for the future? Um, well, it's pretty much the same answer I would have given you when I was 22 or 23 years old, and it's women, really. You know, um, because we've tried the other lot, haven't we? So, it's, and we still try. Yeah, but um, um, it was like for the last session, and I was looking at the title on the wall all the time, owning his stories, and I'm thinking, well, I'm more interested in owning her stories. So, you know, <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Um, how that might have impacted as a question on that panel. Uh, but yeah, totally. I mean, that's, that's what gives me hope. Uh, well, what do I say? Because we're not Bolsonaro or Boris or Donald or, you know, Erdogan or all the other bastards, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> You know, because we're Jacinda and um, Angela. That's who we are, and it's different. Maybe time for one more question. There's one that is a hand up. Go on. Oh. <laughs> so, as well as the Amen sister. One last question. Yes, thank you. Probably just following on on that, then, what do you make of the media treatment of? women MPs today, and I'm thinking in particular uh, how some media have uh, treated Jamie Lee Ross and his story. You know, some media treat him as a victim, a poster boy for, for mental health when he's not, um, and his treatment within Parliament towards women, mainly from the centre-right, has been pretty horrific. So we can say, oh, it's wonderful, we've got these female leaders and, and so forth, but actually, you don't have to go down too much further just to say it, it doesn't go far. Yeah, but changing numbers doesn't transform systems. And, and it takes much, much longer um, to get those, you know, uh, um, kinds of... of it's it's for me it's a transformation in the the nature of the way that power works actually. So see, for me his stories are about power over generally, and her stories are generally about power with, and power for, and power to do, right. So and and shunting the whole place around. Um, just takes enormous um, will and commitment and, um, you know, just just keeping going. And I'm, you know, like, this is a really strange thing, example to give you for some kind of the transformation. But, you know, for as long as I could think, really, I've been a feminist and I've tried to keep all my reading and my research and things up to date. I could not have told you that strangulation and suffocation were the precursors for homicide and that there needed to be special offences. 
Mm. Now, we don't know that until someone who worked on the front line at refuge gets to be an undersecretary for justice and gets to lead the committee to push that through. That's my lifetime I'm talking about. It's like 60 years for us to get to that particular space. And think how much more women's knowledge there is in every nook and corner where if we could bring that to bear on the way that we organize humanity and our lives and the processes that we use to do things. You know, it's, you just gotta, you just gotta <laughs> recognize each little one. One of the things that I made myself do for each year as I was writing this book, um, you know, I'm sure I'm the only person who walks through the airport and sees a woman who's a pilot and thinks, I'd love to ask her if she knows who Jill Tremaine is. Right, the very first woman to be accepted to train as a pilot with Air New Zealand, because all of these names are in my head. I watched the first, Linda Jones, yes. Um, you know, my, my own constituent, um, was given the most appalling reasons why she couldn't, couldn't be, be a, a licensed jockey, you know, and then finally came second in the first year she was allowed to ride. Now women are the top all the time. You know, so uh, to, to make myself feel better, but also for giving us the ups sometimes in these chapters, to remember it wasn't until the 80s that Sonia Davies broke through on the Federation of Labour. You know, all of these things. So I kept, you know, you, even if you're in the middle of parts of this and you're really despairing, around the corner comes a brave woman who's doing it for the first time. So that's the kind of, those are the kind of ways I think about it. I don't seek to, to mimic them at all. And Parliament's processes, Parliament's rules, you know, they have had, except for the fact that um, you do now have leave for school holidays, <laughs> for example, uh, and you do have Fridays, and you don't have as many all-night sittings, they still sit in the same you know, adversarial situation. They still sit under laurel wreaths that name every major European battle and don't name right. the Treaty or any of the New Zealand wars or the suffrage success. You know, it's omnipresent. We got a long way to go, but we just gotta, you know, every one of us just doing the transformative things that we can do is really important. Well, that seems... Um, that's kind of a great moment to finish because Marilyn's work has been transformative. It, in this book, she documents many transformative changes. And I think that is the feeling. We didn't even get on to how long it took to write this book from 400 boxes and over so much time, but I'm so grateful because every one of these little points is a nugget, like all of the knowledge that Jan Logie brought to that legislative change is so significant. 
the work that um, Dame Fetu uh, Terakatni Sullivan put in on the um, abortion law reform. And for those who are thinking, how do we affect change at a despairing moment of time, there were and have been very dark times in New Zealand politics and in global politics before. And this is a beautiful documentation of how you keep resisting. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You can buy a copy outside and stick around <laughs> for the New Zealand wars. <laughs>